Okay, last night, we, we, Tim shared a little bit about this. There's Paul, he's on his way, he saw at this point he's going to Damascus, he's going to persecute the believers, he's gotten a letter to bind them, to kill them, to imprison them, whatever. And on the way, there's this light, they all saw the light, they fell on the ground. Uh, but he says, I heard a voice. The Lord is able to speak very personally and very intimately. And in a sense, this morning, we're all under a shining light. The Bible is a, the Word of God is a light to us. But I hope that you would hear a voice that would speak to you something. Anyway, he heard a voice, and this voice said in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting the believers? Why are you persecuting my followers? Think about it. Why are you persecuting me? Saul had never persecuted Jesus Christ. He had held the, uh, I mean, uh, sorry, he had, uh, maybe he saw Jesus. I don't know that he saw him or not. Maybe he did. But he never persecuted him. Okay? But he had persecuted a lot of believers. You know, he held the cloaks, uh, the garments while they stoned Stephen, and he was getting authority to bind the believers. So the Lord says, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul said, uh, who are you, Lord? He knew it had to be the Lord, you know, the light shining and the voice in the heavens. But he said, who are you? And then the answer was, I am Jesus, whom you persecute. You thought you were persecuting Stephen. You thought you were persecuting those simple believers there in Jerusalem. But you are persecuting me, Saul. This was a, is a companion to Peter's vision. Right away, Peter saw Christ. Christ pointing to the church with Paul, the same kind of thing in a sense. When he meets Christ, the heavenly Christ, the shining light, and the voice that spoke to him, this heavenly Christ introduces him right away to a very profound concept and a very profound truth that Paul is going to expound upon in his epistle. And that is this Jesus, this Christ, is not only the head, the unique individual Jesus Christ, but he is in his body, the church. And when you persecute the church, you persecute Christ. That, that there is not only a head, which is Jesus Christ, there is a body. And the body is the members. And this is going to be fully expounded in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians and other places in the New Testament that this Christ is not only individual, he has a corporate aspect. And what is the church? The church is just the enlarged Christ. The church is the corporate Christ. We are the body. So, okay, here's my head. Alan, you use it for example. Come up here. Think about this. Now, Christ is the head, we know, and the Bible says over and over the church is the body, right? So here's the head, right? That's Christ, the head. Then here's the body. That's the church. So if I hit Alan... He doesn't say, or he could say, but normally he wouldn't say, why do you hit my body? Normally he would say what? Why do you hit me? Why do you hit me? Because the body and the head are just one corporate being. Christ is the head. The church is the body. But this church that's the body is just a part of the corporate Christ. So much so that when... Paul was persecuting the believers, the Lord said, why do you hit me? We need a vision of this. We have a vision of this, and we think about the church a little bit differently than the, than the stucco on the corner. It's a different, it, it's different. Okay?
Okay? So that's Paul's. That's why, and this helps us understand why Paul is the one who expounded so much the church. In the very beginning, he got a vision of the corporate meeting. Okay, then he says to King, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision. He got a vision. He got a vision of Christ. He got a vision of the church. And the rest of his life, he was faithful and obedient to this vision. And I pray, Lord, I want to be faithful and, and obedient to the vision you've shown me. And I hope we'd all pray this. And I hope we'd pray, Lord, give me more vision. That I could be like Paul. That I would be able to be faithfully obedient for my whole life. Okay, then, this morning, uh, in this outline, we will see four things. And number one is the importance of the church. That's Roman numeral three. Okay? Now, look at those verses there. These are by Paul. He wrote these verses. He said this. I'll read them to you. Look at it. That by revelation the mystery was made known to me, as I have written previously in brief, in which by reading it you can perceive my understanding in the mystery of Christ. The universe is a mystery. Scientists are studying it, trying to figure it out. What's there? How big is it? Is it expanding? Is it contracting? Whatever. Uh, how many galaxies and solar systems and all this? A big mystery. Well, anyway, we need to find God. We'll begin to understand a little bit about the universe. But even when we find God, there's a mystery to God. It says this in Colossians. The mystery of God is Christ. You just know God. That's better than not knowing God. But you need to find out the mystery of God is Christ. That's when you really come to know God, when this mystery of God is revealed to you. But here's a verse that talks about not just the mystery of God, but the mystery of Christ. And what is the mystery of Christ? Well, the context here speaks about the mystery of Christ being the church. The church is the mystery of Christ. Okay, then verse 9 says, And to enlighten all that they may see what the economy of the mystery is, which throughout the ages have been hidden in God, in order that now to the rulers and authorities in the heavenlies the multifarious wisdom of God might be made known through the church. The wisdom of God, multifarious wisdom of God, is made known through the church according to the eternal purpose. There is an eternal purpose in the heart of God. And earlier in Ephesians, we didn't put these verses on here, but in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 9, it talks about the mystery of God's will. In uh, chapter 1, verse 9, it talks about also his good pleasure. God has a pleasure. Something makes him happy. And in verse 11, it talks about the counsel of his will and the purpose of the one. So with God, he has a purpose. He has a counsel. There's an intention with God. There's something that he desires. It's something that is a good pleasure to him. And if you study this, you'll find out what is the good pleasure of God, what is the mystery of God, what is the uh, counsel of God. It's all related to the church. The church to be the body of Christ. The church to be the bride of Christ. The church to be the counterpart of Christ. This is very much in God's heart. So the importance of the church. We need to realize the church is important. Now, let's read uh, Ephesians 5, 25 through 32. Sisters, began on 25. Brothers, that you might sanctify her, cleansing her by the washing of the water in the word. Sisters, 
Now consider, I'm going to read you some of the phrases you just read. Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. We know in Galatians, Paul said he gave himself up for me. And in Philippians, he said, Christ Jesus, my Lord. But here, it says, Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. We need to be broadened a little bit in our understanding. Don't just think, yes, Christ died for you. He loves you. He's your Lord. But the Bible also says he loved the church. Okay? And then it says that he would present the church to himself. The church is the corporate body of Christ. And the church is something very, very precious. He wants to present the church. Then uh, it says, uh, no one hating his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes as Christ also the church. And we are members of his body. Then it speaks about the great mystery in the universe, and the great mystery is Christ and the church. So we have to consider, where do we hear about this? Why is no one speaking about the church in this way? The church is precious. The church is the desire of God's heart. He died for the church. So you say, well, that's the invisible church. Well, it's, it's not presented that way in the New Testament. There's no distinction between the visible and the invisible. What's presented in the New Testament, actually, yes, there is doctrine of the church, we, we, we have to admit there certainly is doctrine of the church presented. But in the book of Acts and in many of the epistles, you don't have that much doctrine, but you have a lot of experience and practicality. You have a church life. You have an experience of the church. So we need to have the veils taken away from our eyes to see this matter of what is the church. What about the church, Lord? Okay, now... So first of all, we see that the church is God's heart's desire. Well, it says it here. Christ loved the church. He gave himself up for the church. This is his good pleasure. This is the desire of his heart. This is the purpose. This is his uh, will. Okay, now, well, we can take that and, okay, yeah, that's good. But well, how does that relate to today? So we need to see the second point of our vision of the church, and that is what is presented in the New Testament is also the practicality of the church. Okay, now, let's read Acts 2, 46 and 47. Go. This is speaking about the church life very soon after the day of uh, Pentecost. It was a day-by-day kind of life. They were continuing. They were steadfast. They were enjoying a kind of a one accord. They were meeting sometimes in big meetings in in the temple. They were sometimes meeting in house to house. They were eating together. They were exalting together. They were simple in their heart. They were praising God. And the Lord was adding. He was adding together. And King James, I believe, says, adding together to the church. Day by day, those who are being saved, this is a picture of the practicality of the church right after the day of Pentecost. And what we have in the New Testament is a lot of verses about a practical church life in the beginning. Okay, let's read 8.1. Go.
There was a church in Jerusalem. This wasn't an invisible church. It was a visible church. They were persecuting it. And then, Acts 13.1. There was a church in Antioch. Of course, all the believers weren't in Antioch, but those who were in the church were meeting together in that city. So there's a practicality to the church life. We need to see, number one, God desires the church. God loves the church. Christ died for the church. Number two, we need to see the church has a practicality. It's not just a heavenly church. It's not just a, an invisible church. What's presented in the New Testament is a practical church. Day by day, meeting together, praising the Lord, preaching the gospel, having people added, enjoying one accord, simplicity of heart, being persecuted. There was a church life. There was something practical. This is in the New Testament. You know, you know what the Reformation was over? Well, you may say the Reformation was over justification by faith. Yes, of course it was, but there was an underlying thing that was being fought about too. And I think you need to be clear about that. This underlying thing was Luther said, Scripture, only Scripture. The authority of the Christian life and the church life experience is Scripture, not Scripture plus tradition. The anti-Reformation group, the, the Roman Catholic Church, believed, and they didn't believe it ashamedly. They believed, they promoted it. They were not ashamed to say, we believe authority rests with Scripture and tradition. They weren't ashamed to say that. That was, And they're not ashamed to say it today. If you talk to a, a Catholic, whether he's a believer or not, he'll tell you. We, if he knows anything, we'll tell you. Uh, we believe in Scripture, yes, and tradition. Authority comes from Scripture and tradition. Luther said, no. No. Because tradition can be wrong tradition. It can be degraded tradition. Councils and creeds of men have erred, he said. We cannot judge tradition at the same level as Scripture. So the, the cry of the Reformation was, solo scriptura, only Scripture. So when we talk about the church, we have to go back. Don't look at tradition. You look at what the Bible says. Look at what the Bible says. Unless you are of the opinion that, that we should go back to Scripture and tradition. But you have to deal with that honestly. You have to look that in the face and say, yes, I believe Scripture plus tradition. Don't fool yourself. If you believe in the cry of the Reformation, the Scripture only with authority, then we have to consider the church in light of Scripture not in light of the failure of the church. Yes, the church has failed over 2,000 years. There have been a lot of wrong traditions, a lot of false traditions, a lot of erroneous mistakes that have been passed along as traditions. We reject them. And we take and hold to the Scripture. And the Scripture talks about the church that was practical. The Scripture talks about Christ loving the church, the eternal purpose of God, the pleasure of God, the heart of God, the great mystery in the universe, Christ in the church. The scripture talks about the church in this way, and we have to consider the church in this way. Okay, now, point three we need to see about the vision of the church is that concerning the practicality of the church, that in the New Testament, the way the church was practiced was a very simple way, and that was it was practiced according to locality, according to where you live. Okay, let's read 1 Corinthians 1-2. 
Okay, so here it talks about the church of God. Yes, the church is of God, of course. The source of the church is God. The ownership of the church is God. It is of God. But it's the church of God which is in Corinth. Now, that doesn't mean that everybody in the church at that time was in Corinth. We know that wasn't the case. There were believers in Antioch. There were believers in Rome. There were believers in Jerusalem. But that means that there was a practicality and that the believers who were there living in Corinth were practicing the church life. They were enjoying the church life according to God's ordination. And here's the thing. You study the New Testament. Again, we go back to our premise. and We agree with Luther. Solo Scriptura. We go back to the Scriptures. How do we have the church? How do we practice the church? How do we carry out the church? This is also a big area of debate. How do we have the church life? How to carry out the church life? A lot of theories about this. A lot of ideas through over 2,000 years. But let's go back to the Bible. And if you go back to the Bible, what you find out is the church was practiced in localities. People who lived together in a city, they practiced the church life. And that's why you see time after time it talks about the church in Jerusalem, the church in Antioch, the church in Corinth, the church in Cenchrea, the church in Rome, the church in Thyatira, the church in Ephesus, the church in Laodicea. It never mentions the churches in Rome. No. Now, you may think, well, that's an insignificant happens chance of history. And this is what some Bible teachers say. They have to come up with something. So they say that. This is an insignificant happens chance of, of history. It just happened that way at that time. Well, you can say that unless you see a heavenly vision of the governing principle related to how God dealt with his people and the heart of God for his people, and that governing principle is the preciousness of oneness. And then when you see the preciousness of oneness, of oneness, and you see the heart of God concerning oneness, then you realize it's the wisdom of God that the church would be practiced locally and there would be a governing principle to restrict us and to deal with the divisive nature of man that is contrary to the unique oneness of the Godhead. And this little governing principle is that the church is revealed in the New Testament as being practiced according to locality, which governs and restricts us from the divisive nature of the flesh. You know in Galatians chapter 5, it mentions the works of the flesh. And in the works of the flesh, there's a long list there. And it begins with fornication, with drunkenness, with carousing, with drinking bouts, and all this kind of stuff. You know, awful stuff. You think, well, that's the flesh. No doubt about that. But then it kind of moves on into envy, to strife, to jealousy, to parties, to factions, to divisions. You say, whoa, wait a second. Is that the flesh? To be divisive? To be have factions and have parties and have striving? Is that the flesh? That's the flesh. That's the flesh. So God, in his wisdom, in the beautiful and complete and perfect picture we have in the New Testament, again, we, we believe the New Testament, that's it. That's our standard. Okay? Whatever you practice, whatever you do, it's got to match up to that. It doesn't get better. It's, it's, it's right there. The full revelation, the blueprint is there. The blueprint is in the New Testament. And not only in the New Testament, the blueprint is in the Old Testament. But it's, it's clarified in the New Testament. Anyway, 
what is there in the New Testament is a blueprint of the way to practice the church life that will govern us and restrict us so that we can enjoy oneness. And that is a very simple little thing, and that is in the New Testament, you never find that they practice the church life in any other way than the church according to locality. Not churches in a city. No. Not churches according to the street. There are some mentionings of the church in a house. And some Christians have really jumped on this and said, you see, it says in Colossians, it says in Romans 16, the church in the house. The church in the house. They make a big case for this. But, again, the context and the fuller study only confirms that why it mentions that is because the church in Rome or the church in Sincrea or the church in Colossae or the church in Laodicea, wherever, it was meeting in a house. And still today, many local churches meet in homes because it's small. So it's not that that's a doctrine. That is just, that was just speaking about the situation that the church in the city met in a home. Okay, again, you have to look back, stand back, look at the scriptures, and look at the governing principle. We'll touch this. Okay, then you have Acts 14.23. It says they appointed elders in every church. In Titus 1.5, it says elders in every city. Very interesting. Titus was a, a co-worker of Paul. He went to Crete, a little island. And there Paul was charging his young co-worker, appoint elders in every city. But he had already practiced himself appointing elders in every church. Again, this only confirms with all the other scriptures that the practice of the church life in the New Testament era, it was a practicality, and it was practiced in localities. There was elders in the city, there was elders in the church. Why? Because in the church and the city, they were the same. There was, it was one thing, and that is they were practicing the church life in this way. Then you have Revelation 1.11, it says, what you see right and send it to the seven churches. And then it mentions seven cities. Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamos, Thyatira, Sardis, Laodicea, Philadelphia, Laodicea. So the church and the city, this is God's ordination. And it's God's ordination not merely as well God's just honor. He wants to, you know, kind of trip us up a little bit and make it rough for us. Or it's just some funny thing, a quirk that he has. No, it's the principle of oneness. It's a little governing principle for the, the preservation of the oneness among the people. Now, the reason we have the boldness to say that is because throughout the whole Old and New Testament, which the next section talks about, we see how precious oneness is to God. You know, the top attribute of the triune God is his oneness. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit are one. The top attribute. And we know, we have the verses here, John 17, where the Lord prayed. Well, let's go down there and read it. Look at John 17 in Romans uh, numeral 6, point 7. How about we read those verses? Ready? Go.
Now, this is the prayer the night before the Lord is going to be crucified. And he didn't pray that the gospel go all over the earth. He didn't pray that the believers would all be, uh, you know, holy and live a good life. But he prayed that they would be perfected into one. And he said that not only these am I praying for, I'm praying for the ones that are going to believe through the word of these. In other words, all of us. And I'm praying that they would be one, Father. I've given them my glory that they could be one. And that this oneness is going to be a strong and convincing proof to the world. And that means the idea that this we're one in the Spirit, you know, and it's just a kind of a mystical oneness, but there's no practical testimony of this oneness, this just shoots a hole through that. Because the oneness that the Lord prayed for was at least, at least according to his prayer, was a visible oneness. The world could see. The world could actually see this oneness. And I'll tell you, it is a, it is a powerful testimony when the world sees people who are one who love each other. In this room, my goodness, so many different kinds of races and ethnic groups and backgrounds. You have people from Asia, from Africa, from Europe, from America, from South, North America, South America, all over the world here. Every kind of color. And yet, at least in measure, there is a degree of oneness that is a strong and prevailing testimony that Christ is real that his salvation is dynamic and that the church is even real. And the more this oneness is perfected and testified of in locality after locality after locality, all kinds of different people. We don't choose who comes into church. We don't choose. This is not a homogeneous group of white people, right? Or a homogeneous group of black people. That's wrong. If everybody in the church is black, it's wrong. We're not a black church. We're not a white church. We're the church. Every race, every nationality, every color. They're all brought into Christ. And they're all brought into the body of Christ. The testimony is quite prevailing. Actually, many people have come among us and have been very touched. Wow, what kind of church is this? Because many times you go, it's just all natural. You know, all the white folks get together and all the Chinese folks over here and the Koreans over there and the black people over there. And you look out there. And this is the kind of church that you see many times. All black, because it's a cultural thing. You're all Koreans, because they like Korean food, whatever. <laughs> you know, they're all white, because they're, you know, they think that's best. But, but the, the, the real church is made up of all the tribes, and all the tongues. And in Christ Jesus, it says in Colossians, in Christ Jesus, and in the new man, which is the church, there's no room for this stuff. There's no room for the Greeks, and the Jews, and the circumcision. There's no room for the free, and the slave. None of that has a place. But in the real church, the new man, Christ is all. Christ is in all. And this is a dynamic testimony. And again, the Lord prayed for this. Okay, now, real quick, just to look at Roman numeral 6. The time is about up here, but, but the principle of oneness in the Bible, you say, well, again, you know, the, the argument is, oh, they practice, yes, it, in the New Testament it was one church in the city, and it, it was Rome, and, and there's no indication that there were more than one church in Rome. But again, that was a church was small, and that was those days, and uh, it was just kind of a thing. Don't make a big deal of this. Just don't make a big deal of it. I mean, whatever, you know. People have to find a way to push this out. But when you start looking into the Old and New Testament and find out, there is a principle that is in the heart of God, and it's the principle of the preciousness of oneness. 
and it's the very thing that Christ prayed for the night before he's going to be crucified, you can't dismiss it that easy. Okay? Creation. He created one man. You think, well, All the peoples to come out of one man. Just one man. We were all from the same source. There's a oneness in our very creation. In his calling, he called one man. He didn't call a bunch of Jews. Like, okay, let's go. He called one guy, Abraham. That was the father of the called race. All the Jews come out of Abraham. All man comes out of Adam. In the new creation, it talks about in the, in the, in the, uh, the New Testament several times that in the new creation there's one new man. And this one new man is the church, spoken of in Colossians and Ephesians both. One new man. We are the new man. The church is the new man. And the new Jerusalem, at the end of the Bible, there's one city, the new Jerusalem. All the believers will be there. We'll all be in one city. And then the seven ones revealed in Ephesians chapter 4. One body, one spirit, one hope. There's only one body of Christ. There's only one spirit, the Holy Spirit. There's only one hope we have, and that's the new Jerusalem. Then there's only one Lord. There's only one faith, a unique faith. There's only one baptism. And there's one God and Father of all. Everything's one. And then Paul, in his writings, I refer to this, condemned division. In Corinth, there was division. He condemned it. He didn't agree with division. He considered division. He considered strife. He considered parties. He considered sex. He considered jealousy and all the things that lead to division as works of the flesh. Why is it that Christians can't be one? Mainly it's one thing. It's not mainly doctrine. There is some problem in that. Mainly it's just the flesh. Just the personality problems and myself gets in the way and I want to be this and I don't like the way you do that and you, you snore at night and things like this. <laughs> so I, we're going to separate. We're going to divide. And it mainly it's just power struggles. It's the same thing as the United Nations. It's just power struggles. And so I go start my own church. That's the flesh. I go start my own church. That's the flesh. You don't have a right to start your own church. There's only one church. And we need to practice it according to the scriptures. Not according to your idea, not according to my idea. According to God's idea. 